You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thanks for joining us for this sermon series, Back to Basics. Morning, Real Life. How you doing? Good. Glad you're here. Uh, We want to take a minute right now, welcome in our Pullman campus. Let's give a shout out to them. Glad that they're with us this morning. Um, I am up here with my friend Lisa and Bella, and you will find out why they're here in just a second. (laughs) We're trying to make this as awkward for Bella as possible, and so here's what I want you to do. After the service today, what I want you to do is to go up to her and awkwardly stand close to her and stare. Because she'll really appreciate that. She really appreciates it when people do that. So at both campuses this morning, we have something special going on that I want to make you guys aware of. Um, Our church has always been uh, a place where we want to take seriously what it means to minister to the alien, the orphan, the widow in our community. And specifically in regards to orphans, it's, I mean, in, in our context, we don't have a huge case for orphans, although there is a case for like adoption and that kind of stuff. And Lisa and I have both been a part of that experience, um, not together, but separately, because uh, that would be a whole nother conversation. But uh, <laughs> by the way, divorce care uh, class uh, <laughs> going on right now. Uh, you probably should jump in on that. Maybe, I, maybe I'm going to need it. Uh, so anyway, um, but in our culture, one of the ways that we can really help kids in our communities through foster care, and, and so today, uh, both campuses, we have uh, information tables set up with people from the foster care system that are here to help us have information. And so what I want to do is give you guys a picture of what we're talking about, because I was stunned at how many ways there are to help foster care even beyond being a foster care parent, obviously, if the Lord calls you to that, please jump on that opportunity. But um, um, so many ways to make a difference in that world. And so I wanted to take this opportunity to help you guys see some of those ways. So Bella, tell us about your placement, kind of where you were at, what happened, and then where you landed and all of that stuff. Okay. Uh, it was around nighttime, and we were all at my brother's house, and we got a call from my grandparents, and we had to go up to our house, and there was tons of cops everywhere, and there was people coming in and out of our house. We had people telling us that we had to pack our clothes, and we got into a random person's car, and my little sisters were crying. They were terrified. And so we got in, and we started heading up. We got into, like, three different cars to get up where we were. We got landed in Post Falls. It was three hours away from where we were, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning when we landed in our first foster home. I had to be like more of like the adult in the situation because my sisters are younger than me, and so it was t- kind of terrifying for me too while in the process of it. But yeah, yeah, and so you were taken from your home, surprised, mm-hmm. uh, put in some car who didn't know who you were with, through several hours, landed in Post Falls at 2 a.m., and then woke up to have breakfast with some lady you never met. Yep. Yeah. So that seems crazy to me. And so, Lisa, maybe you can speak to this. Why is it that that kind of a situation happens when we have kids that need to be placed in homes? So unfortunately, that is a common situation. Um, Bella and her sisters are from Kamii, and there were no foster homes in Kamii. There were no foster homes available in Lewiston or in Moscow or in Coeur d'Alene. 
And so she and her sisters were taken very suddenly and in a very frightening way and were taken all the way to Post Falls. Fortunately, a foster home was located for them later in Moscow, and they were able to be placed, moved back to Moscow, which is closer to their family, but still a distance away. And then um, through a variety of circumstances, Bella came to live with our family, and she's been with us for four months, which is really our joy and our privilege. Okay. And so when you think about helping foster kids, why don't you tell me some of the ways that we can do that, and then maybe kind of when we talk about the information tables and stuff, what kind of people are we looking for for that? Okay. There are a variety of ways that we as a church can help foster kids. Um, Of course, the obvious way is that we need more foster families in Moscow. Um, And I would love for if any of you are interested in foster care, if you've ever considered it, if you have questions about foster care, we have people here today who can answer those questions. And we'd love for you to stop by and talk with us. Um, In addition to foster families, we need people in our church who would be interested in supporting the foster families in our church. And there are so many ways you can do that. Any... Everything from driving kids to appointments to walking alongside a foster family for the duration of a placement to bringing a family a meal when they get a new child in their home. Whatever your skill is, whatever your interest is, we can use you to help us. Um, The third person that we would love to have stop by is we actually have foster families in our church and we don't know who you are and we would love to support you and meet your needs. So we would love for you to stop by and talk with us too. Okay. And so you talked about like simple stuff like driving them to appointments, um, making sure that they have basic needs met um, outside of the foster family itself. Tell me about respite care specifically, because that's something that I think is, I misunderstood respite care. So explain that. Respite care is uh, taking a foster child or foster children into your home overnight or for a weekend so that foster families can get a break or if they need to go out of town for an extended period of time. Sometimes foster children are not able to leave the state and they need um, a, a family to take care of them for a period of time. So that is always a need in our community. And that's something that we would love to have in our church too, is respite families. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I had the misconception of is that respite care was about like really, really messed up situations where it's so desperate, but it really isn't typically that case. Bella, why don't you tell us a little bit about the kinds of kids that are getting placed in foster care? There are little babies that are infants that come into homes. There are toddlers. There are teenagers. There are many kids that come to the homes, but most teenagers don't get put into homes. They get put in like group homes or a place called niche. And because most parents don't want teenagers because they think they are in trouble or they are bad kids, which in reality, they aren't really bad kids. They're just scared and they haven't been loved enough by their parents and they just need a loving home that they can go to for help. Good, good. I think if I could have a foster kid like Bella, I would take 12 of them. Uh, (laughs) I'd have a dozen of them. Uh, So I am, I'm excited for us to do this and I'm excited to have Lisa Champion in this. Obviously, Lisa, you're pretty passionate about foster care. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you're so passionate about foster care? There are really two reasons. One is, 
that I think when you take a foster child into your home, you're not only providing a loving, safe home for that child, you're also serving that child's family. For whatever reason, that child's been removed from their family, and that family is in a very vulnerable position of having to trust strangers to take care of their child. And if you can imagine what that might feel like, that is a very difficult thing and a hard time in their lives. And they're doing whatever they can to bring their children home, and we want to support those families. And that's the mission of our church, to love and serve people. So I think that fulfills a goal for us as a body. So as real life, I think that's something we can do. Secondly, foster care is very important to me because when I was about Bella's age, I spent a year in foster care. And in that year, I came to know Jesus. And it changed my life for all eternity. And it changed my family for generations. So if you say yes to foster care, if God leads you to be a foster parent, you cannot even begin to imagine how God might use you and the stories he'll write with your life. So I just encourage you to pray about it and think about it. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to pray as we wrap this section down. And again, there's information out in the lobby in Pullman. There's information in the front classroom. Uh, There's actually people there to talk with you both places. There's people there to talk with you. If you're interested in either becoming a foster parent or supporting a foster family, both of those are critical. Or if you're a foster family, we want to love you. We want to love you well and support you and and say that we think God smiles because of what you do in our community. So uh, we want to do that. And so we want to know who you are. Uh, Go out and visit with those people and we'll get connected. But I want to pray and then we'll move forward. Uh, Lord, thank you for the call to to serve and put you on display in hard places. And uh, Lord, I hope that, I, I pray that you would help us to have the courage to walk that out well. Lord, um, I know that in this room and sitting in the, in the SEL event center right now, there are people that you're moving on their hearts to do this. And so I pray that you would give them courage. Lord, help them to be willing to follow you in the willingness to serve in this capacity. What a difference it can make. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for uh, how you always provide for us in your name. Amen. All right. So we are going to jump into the back half of this vision series. And last week, we talked about loving God. And our, our basic premise was loving God is loving people. Right? Loving God is loving people. When we love people well, we love God well. Now, today we're going to talk about loving people. And what my premise is, is loving people is loving God. And we talked last week about this um, kind of continuum that we live in where we kind of have a tendency to fall off of one side or the other too far And uh, we struggle with that a little bit, where either as Christians, we kind of fall into this like study and knowledge and class and information, and we want to learn and we want to be mentally uh, grown and make our brain get larger and, you know, uh, look like Binky from Binky and the Brain. Like we want to do that. We want to do that. Or we fall onto the other side too far where it's like, We're just going to love people and we have the social gospel or social causes and those are all important, but without the the substance of character that study brings, we don't don't have the fortitude to be able to do it well. And so we wind up becoming just like the people we're trying to help. 
So what I want to talk about is, for me personally, I, I was raised as a preacher's kid. I was born in, I may have been born in the church sanctuary. Um, I mean, like, it's just the way uh, my life has been. And so the tradition of churches that I was raised up in was we are people of the book, and we study the word, and it's the word, and the knowledge, and the and so they were just really smart jerks, is really what it boiled down to, and, and that, that always was a disconnect for me, for, and I couldn't always articulate it well, but when I got kind of into my own ministry, there was a reaction to that in my own life, and so the reaction was to maybe fall a little bit too far on the other side, where I was like, you know what, just love people, just love people, just love people, and, and so... Um, over the, the years, it's been this tension for me between study and, and love and, and all that stuff. And, and I want to be clear about this. I value knowledge. I believe that every single one of us should pour our lives out in study of God's word. I think you should have a goal of carving two to three hours a day out to study God's word. Now, before you go, oh my word, that's so much. Turn the TV off. You'll have it. Like, the idols of our culture give us excuses that are unfounded, right? Like, I know you might miss, you might miss something important. You know, you might, it's what DVR is for. <laughs> That's what DVR is for. It's brilliant. Anyway, like, there is time in the day. And what I can tell you is, I don't care how hard you work. And a lot of you guys work hard, and I love that. It's never your scheduled time that kills you. It's always how we utilize our discretionary time. That's what kills us. But I think we should all have a goal of two to three hours of study in a day. I think we should do that. You're like, what would we do? Well, study. Read the Bible. Listen to the Bible on tape. I got a great idea. Write your own copy of the Bible. Write it. Type it. I'll even let you type it. Not, don't write your, like, your own words. Read the Bible and write it. They'll be like, I'll say whatever I want. Thus saith the Lord, I am awesome. You know, like, and Aaron shall be blessed greatly. Like, don't do that. Like, write a copy of it. it. What I can tell you is that is another way for you to get the text into your heart. Yes. And it's some, there's something weird about writing the text. Like, I, it, it hits me in a different way than it has previously. And, I, you know, I have graduate degrees in studying the Bible. So, like, it's one of those things that for me, it's just been a really powerful discipline uh, in my own personal life. So do that. Like, don't, you don't have to do two hours right off the bat. Work, do 30 minutes. Do, do five and five. Do this. Read the Bible for five minutes and pray for five minutes. Start there. Read the Bible for five minutes and pray for five minutes. Do you know that if you just did that, you would be in the top 1% of all Christians for the amount of time you study in a day? 10 minutes. We should pursue knowledge. We should. The problem comes when we pursue knowledge as an end rather than knowledge as a means to something greater. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So I want to give you some text that, because I, I want, for those of us that are in here that are like, the word and the study and the reading and the, like, I love that. Good, because we need you people. We need you people in the body of Christ. We do. Um, but I want to read some passages. Let's read some. I'm going to rapid fire these at you. Talk no more uh, so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you're like, I don't need the word, I just need to love people. The Bible calls you a fool. Uh, take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than gold. I don't know if you look at like pop culture, how many people are pursuing knowledge rather than money? I don't know, just, I don't know, read your headlines. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Now look at this. This is a story of um, Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica and they get sent to Berea, okay, as a safety mechanism for their lives. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the reason why they were considered more noble is because they were willing to not just accept everything that was being said, but they wanted to go search the scriptures over it. They wanted to study. Which, by the way, I got a noble idea for you. I mean, I'm right, but... Don't just accept it because I say I'm right. Go search those scriptures. Oh, and by the way, while we're at it, you have full permission to disagree with me. You do. Because I don't know if you know this, but I'm not Jesus. Like, really close. But not, not actually Jesus. I didn't know if you knew that. Here's what I'll say, though. You don't have to agree with me, but you better have a well-reasoned biblical response why you believe what you do. Because I have a well-reasoned biblical response about why I believe what I believe. It's not us thinking and waxing eloquent about ideas and thoughts. It's got to be grounded in the text. Diligently study the scriptures. It's more noble. It's more noble. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy. Next slide. There it is. Do your best to present yourself. How much, how much are we supposed to do? Not like 50%. Don't like, oh, I kind of work at it. I kind of read the Bible. I kind of eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. How hard should you work at rightly handling the word of truth? You should do your best. Like, I think you should at least have the same passion for that that you have for football. Amen. It, and I know I didn't, get a lot of, I didn't get a lot of applause on that one. Like, <laughs> wait, what? Because, I mean, you know how you guys, you know how you are, some of you ladies too, football! You know, like, I don't care if you love football, but don't love it more than you love God. 
I got, I got to tell you a story. So I was at this retreat a while ago. And at this retreat, the particular group of men, um, it was a men's retreat, the particular group of men all, by and large, shared an affinity for one professional football team. Um, the guy who was leading worship had an affinity for kind of a rival football team, okay? And so on, his, on the worship leader's computer, uh, on his desktop, was a picture of the helmet of this opposing football team. Now, they're worshiping in the worship service, and the computer decides to uh, run a video card update, just automatically run a video card update. And so it shut the PowerPoint down, and it shows the helmet of this rival football team. <laughs> this, if I'm lying, I'm dying. This happened. Those men stopped telling God who he was to them and started booing. That's not funny. That's shameful. And like we laugh off the idol of sports in our culture, but the truth is, that was wrong. We should at least give the text the same effort that we give to how much we love other things in our life. And maybe even a little bit more. Right? And before you go, but I don't have time for that then maybe you have some idols you need to let go of completely. See, here's the tension of this pursuit of knowledge because in and of itself, knowledge becomes one of these idols that we chase. Becomes this, I'm smart, therefore I'm mature. And we can have all these big lofty ideas in our brains, but our life is a mess. Our life is a mess. And the problem with it is that knowledge becomes the end. I want to show you Isaiah 47. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Uh, I love this verse. Actually, Paul gave me this verse at Sermon Club this week. It's a really good verse. I, I love the truth that this expresses because it's so like, it's so us in that like Western language, English is a philosophical conceptual language. It's an idea laden, like we talk about lofty ideas and concepts, right? So we go to small group to talk about the word, but we don't talk about the word, we talk about faith and we use the word to talk about faith. Does that make sense? There's nothing wrong with talking about faith. We talk about faith and grace and all these concepts, philosophies, ideas, these kinds of things. This is where we spend our time. English is a language rooted in nouns. What that means is when we communicate, we communicate about things, thoughts, ideas. And we can totally agree with the truth of what is being communicated, but because we're rooted in nouns and not verbs, we have no compulsion to actually act on it. Let me give you an example. Don't put your hand up because you'd be embarrassed. How many of us sitting in this room know that it would be a good idea for us to eat healthy and lose weight? And yet we don't. And we go, I wanna, I wanna 
whatever. I want to quit smoking. I want to exercise. I want to eat my vegetables. I want to... No, you don't. Not from a Jewish perspective. Hebrew language is built on verbs. It's not about the nouns or the concepts or the ideas. It's about the action. The life that I live will tell you exactly what I value. So if I, I can talk all day long about one and have all vast knowledge, vast knowledge about eating right and losing weight. But if I'm not actually walking it out, then no, I don't want to. Not from, a, not from an Eastern perspective. See, the problem with knowledge is that it gives me this false sense of security. That it's just in the knowing that I'm enough, right? But what the Bible teaches us is that the knowing has to lead us to doing. Make sense? So one of the things that keeps us from loving people well is that we believe that the point is the pursuit of knowledge. And I'm all for knowledge. I'm all for it. But don't believe for one second that knowledge is an end in and of itself. Okay? And here's why. Because it leads me to the second point that we're going to talk about. And you probably have more, but I'm going to throw this out. Um, probably more reasons that you could come up with that we don't love, reasons why we don't love people well. But the second reason why I think we don't love people well is because of a fear of inadequacy. Like, I'm not enough. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not together enough. I'm not, I don't have it enough. I don't, like, I'm not like, I'm no spiritual leader. Like, I could, I could never get up on stage and, you know, teach a lesson. I don't know about you guys, but Bella came up here today and changed me. She changed me. No theological degrees, just God using the truth of somebody's heart. Like, maybe that's enough. Maybe that's enough. So I want to I wanna kind of sandwich two passages today. And I want to take a look at this, what we've got. So I want to start in John 4. This is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, okay? And says, he, that's Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria, which is not true. He did not have to pass through Samaria. He chose to. Uh, Like, there was this compulsion in him. Most Jews walked around Samaria, so he didn't have to go through. It wasn't like there was only one path to walk. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar and near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. Um, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, hear me say this. You don't send 12 people into town for 13 people's lunch. Right? There's something else going on here that Jesus is setting up. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. Okay, now let me show you a couple of pictures that will help you get your mind around what does this mean, living water? What is he talking about? Okay, the first picture is this. It's a waterfall. This is living water. This is actually from uh, the spring at Engedi. And so uh, if you go to Israel with me, we'll go there. We'll go look at that. We'll go, actually go swim in there. What we do. Uh, so, but this is living water. Living water moves under its own power. That's the definition of living water. It's water that moves under its own power. Now, you are allowed to cut the channel it travels in, but as soon as you pick it up in a bucket and move it, it is no longer living water. Now, think about this. For a desert people, Living water is really critical because if you come up in the, in the hot to a pool of water, what's true of stagnant water? It's nasty. Bacteria, algae, and, and all the animals have been kind of walking in it, you know, and doing other things in it, on top of the, rolling around in it. You know, they're, I mean, it's nasty. Stagnant water is nasty. Living water keeps itself pure. Does that make sense? So this is a really important metaphor in the desert. Uh, let me show you a picture of the desert that we're talking about. It's beautiful. It's like the moon. <laughs> it's, look at that. That is Wadi Zoar. If you come with me to Israel, we'll go there too. Uh, we'll hike there. The last time we were there, it was so awesome. Because we're going to talk about the desert. Like, think about the desert metaphor in your life used in the scriptures. The desert becomes a metaphor for the troubled times in our life, right? Like, it feels like a desert. And that's a, such a great description. We got off the bus. It was in the afternoon. We got off the bus. It was 115 degrees. And I was the only one who knew what we were doing and where we were going. <laughs> so they got off the bus and they were like, oh, man. And I was like, my eyeballs hurt. I was like, this is going to be awesome. Because we hike in this nasty desert, 115 degrees, and then we talk about what it feels like to be in the desert of your life. And then we invite one another to go be living water in the deserts of other people's lives. This is the invitation of Jesus to the woman at the well. He's like, look, if, if you want to, follow God, if you want to worship God in spirit and in truth, he's going to go on to say, what it's going to look like is you choosing to be living water. Yes. Now, in John chapter 7, just a few chapters later, we're going to see almost the same phrase come up. And by the way, John is a Jew. Anytime that he uses the same phrase, you need to key in on it because he's trying to tie them together. That's what they do. Jesus is up on the Temple Mount. Come with me to Israel. We'll go see it. He's up on the Temple Mount. Josephus says that during the Feast of Sukkot, which is what this feast is, at one particular Sukkot, there was 300,000 people on the Temple Mount at one time. 
Now, think about this. What we do during Sukkot is we live in tents and we remember the Exodus and we begin to pray for rain. Sukkot is in September and it's at the end of the dry season. We've harvested and we begin to pray, Lord, we need the rain because if the rain doesn't come now, we're kind of in trouble. We need it to rain. We need God to show up. And so we take a palm frond some other things as well, but we take a palm frond up on top of the Temple Mount and we begin to shake it. Now, this is a tradition that evolved over time. Um, that's not actually what's written in Leviticus. Um, you'll know that because next week we start Leviticus. Exciting. It's exciting. Uh, this is a tradition that evolved over time, but they take it and they begin to shake it. Now, think about this. 300,000 people, maybe that's an exaggeration, maybe it isn't, we don't know, but 300,000 people in unison shaking palm fronds. What does it sound like? Rain. And so they, they come together, and for the first seven days, they, every day, at, the, at an appointed time, the priest takes a, a pitcher and he climbs up the steps of the altar and he gets up to the top in front of the people and he takes the pitcher and he does this and he dumps it, but there's nothing in it. Okay? Now, the first seven days are like um, the undercard at a boxing match or an MMA match. Like there's some people there, but it, like the last day, the, the great Hoshana, the Hoshanaraba, the great last, the last and greatest day of the feast everybody's there. This is the championship moment. And so he, everybody's there and they're all shaking their palm fronds and they're shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana. Now we sing this, Hosanna, Hosanna, like it's some term of endearment to God. It, it's a term of desperation. It means Lord save us. Like if, God, if you don't show up, we don't, we don't eat. If you don't show up, my children starve. God, Lord, save us. I'll do anything I gotta do. I'm desperate. And so together, 300,000 people shaking these palm fronds, shouting, Hoshana. I mean, you could hear it on the mountainsides for miles. And the priest Gets, climbs up the stairs up to the top and people fall silent and he turns the pitcher over and it's empty. But today, we will have none of it. And so even more frenetically, we start shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, and we loud, 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 loud. And so the priest walks down and if he's any kind of Jew at all, he takes his sweet time about it. And he's goes to the furthest possible pool away, which in my opinion is the pool of Bethesda, which is all the way down in the bottom of the Kidron Valley. And if you come with me, we'll go there. Uh, and he scoops up water and he hikes back up and goes back on the Temple Mount and begins to ascend the stairs and the crowd falls silent. Now think about this, 20, 30, 40 minutes, we've been shouting, 300,000 of us shouting, Hoshana, God save us and it falls silent. It's at this moment that Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and springs of living water will come out of him. 
chutzpah. <laughs> right? Are you kidding me? Oh, by the way, Jesus' promise here on the Temple Mount is really critical to you and me. Because he doesn't promise that if you're desperate and thirsty, that if you come to him, you will be filled. What he promises is, if you come to him, streams of living water will come out of you. See, Jesus' invitation for you and I isn't that we go sit at the feet of Jesus and get filled up and be happy and filled all the time. That was never our call. Our call as followers of Jesus is to go to the source for the purpose of being living water in the deserts of the people around us. And that makes all the difference. Because the expectation isn't that you have it all figured out. The expectation isn't that you have degrees or biblical knowledge, although you should pursue all those things because it will help your living water taste better. But don't ever neglect the truth that your call is to be living water in other people's deserts. That's who you are. And somehow in the midst of it, we both get transformed. And what I know is for many of us, we're so wrapped up in our own problems, in our own deserts, that we lose sight of the fact that there's deserts all around us. And you have the source of living water living in you. Go give them a drink. Because when you love people well, your loving God. Now, we're going to move towards communion. And uh, for those of you that are new with us, uh, we have what's called an open table. And here's what that means. If you're willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us, we want to invite you to partake in communion with us. But we're going to hold those elements to the end and we're going to take them all together. But our table is open. Our table is open. All are welcome to join us at the table. There's been a lot of people that have tried to push me on that. Everybody's welcome at the table. Because I think that's how Jesus would want it. Now, while they are passing those out, we're going to work through some implications, probably lots more implications in your life about where you need to begin not worrying about the deserts in your life. Well, if I just get on the other side of this desert, then I'll be able to. No, go be living water in other people's deserts now. But while we're passing that out, I want to work through a, a few implications. Implication number one, following God has always been about blessing others. It has always, 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 always been about being a blessing to other people. 
Look at Genesis 12. This is God's first conversation with Abram. By the way, his first conversation with Abram. This is his promise that he's going to make Abram great, that he's going to bless the, just let's read it. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, which sounds like some great step of faith, but it really isn't. It's not. That's another sermon for another day, but it really isn't as big a step of faith as it sounds. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. How many of us wouldn't want that? So God says, Abram, I'm going to take you to this place and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to prosper you and I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to make your name great. Now the question is, why? Why would God do that for Abram? Is it because he's super special? He's happening in a far out way. Here's why God did it. Here's why God did it. So that you will be a blessing. Listen to me. Your money that you make at your job, your things that you pursue, the blessings that God gives you, it's all his and he doesn't give it to you so that you can have a mansion on a hill. Now, if you have a mansion on a hill, don't sell it. <laughs> don't. Uh, just give it to me. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Don't do that. But it's not about you. Use your mansion on a hill to be living water in the deserts of other people. Yes. It only makes sense. It's what the kingdom of God is supposed to be about. Um, next implication. No amount of personal study will ever give you rest. If you believe that studying is the pursuit, that is the end of this, um, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Study, work at it, work at it with all your heart, but it's never gonna give you peace. It's gonna give you character. L look at this passage. Ecclesiastes, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Can I get an amen from my college students? Yeah. <laughs> oh, none of you in this service? What? He's sleeping in? It's, it's wearying. It's wearying if study is the goal. If study is the goal, it's wearying. Look at this, Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand at the roads, uh, one version says at the crossroads, and ask where the ancient path is. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. What's the ancient path for us? It's always been that God will bless you so that you will be a blessing for other people. If you're going to walk the path of God, it will always demand that you choose to bless other people, that you choose to become living water in their deserts. And what he says is, and then, and only then, only after you choose to be living water, 
then you will find rest for your souls. Amen. So if your soul is troubled, if you're looking around at culture freaked out, where's God? Oh, what a mess. Oh, it's so decrepit. Go be living water. Go find people's messes and get in it. And you'll find rest for your souls then. Last implication. The only way to be living water is to go to the source. And so we come full circle. Your words have no power and no authority. Only God's word will not return void. It's the only words that have that promise. And we have, like, for all the pop psychology and self-help stuff and all this stuff has its place in, in whatever, only God's word, only God's word can bring us what we need. It's the only word that lives. Jesus said this, like, man doesn't live by bread alone, right? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So maybe we should know those. Maybe we should know what those words are. And we can read great thinkers throughout church history. We can read what they thought, what Thomas Aquinas thought, and what Augustine thought, and what all these great theologians of the years gone by thought, Martin Luther and John Wesley and John Calvin and all those guys. We can read what all those guys thought, and that's great. But those words don't live either. Only the word of God lives. Only the word of God lives. Jesus' invitation to us from the beginning, of the, end to, the beginning to the end of his ministry is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to do what I do. You're going to have to walk as Jesus walked, right? What that means is that we have to be willing to lay our life down. And Jesus says it point blank. He says, if you lay down your life, you'll find it in the end. And now, what a lot of people have interpreted that as is if you lay your life down while you're living, then when you die, you go to heaven in the end. And that is a way to understand that. What I think Jesus is saying there is when you lay your life down, what you find is a better version of life than you ever thought you could possibly have. Yeah. You find what true life is. But getting there is not going to look like mansions on hill, in hilltops. It's going to look a lot like what communion represents. It's going to look like us laying our lives down for the well-being of other people. It's a reminder that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. So let's remember him this morning. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. Whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we just want to ask for the courage to get, to go find the deserts of the people around us and be living water. Lord, give us wisdom as we figure out how to serve others well.
Lord, we love you. We, uh, we're, I'm amazed at the call that you've given us to put, your, put you on display to the world. Thank you that your image doesn't dwell in rocks or wood, but that it dwells in us. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this message from Real Life. If you have any questions or feedback about this sermon, send us an email at comment at liferotp.com. You can also connect with us at our website, Facebook, and on Twitter.